0: Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I am really excited to welcome Kalen
1: Bush to today's episode. What's up, Kalen? Hey, Ty. Good to, uh, good to be on. Thanks for, thanks for having me.
0: Really happy and grateful to have you on. Kalen has been an awesome resource in all things fraud protection, and the details of which are, are pretty important. And so uh, excited to dive into it with you today. Maybe kicking off, like, give us a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, definitely. I can give you a quick run through. So uh, I've been in sales pretty much my whole career for the last 10 years or so, working across mainly Europe and APAC. So after university uh, here in Europe, I decided to change the uh, the grey, wet weather of Ireland for the sunny beaches of Sydney, Australia. So I went down there for a couple of years, which was a very, very nice uh, environment to live in just working across a few various sales roles, including things like uh, cold calling Australians 200 times a day selling life insurance, which was great entrance to uh, to sales. So I really enjoyed myself down there for a few years, then came back to Europe, got into the B2B SaaS space, also kind of typically in, in those, these types of sales growth roles. Um, and then through that, I actually got the opportunity then to move over to Singapore in 2018 which is really exciting. So I decided to take advantage of that. So I've actually been based in Singapore for five years from 2018 up until 2023, up until April of this year, when due to my new role with Traffic Guard and the evolution that we're seeing in the affiliate marketing space, I decided to make the move back to Europe, to London, so I could be closer to Europe and especially close to the US because it's obviously such a big region when it comes to, uh, to affiliate marketing.
0: That's awesome. I love it. And um, some really interesting experiences you've had. I, I can definitely identify with some of those. But 200 calls a day, holy cow. Tell us more about that within reason. I know that not the focus of our chat, but I think a lot of salespeople and people in general don't realize like what goes into that. And, and that's that's pretty intense.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was, it was a really good entrance to sales, I would say. Definitely not something you want to do too long term. But it was just on a dialer. You start at 9am in the morning. Once the dialer starts, you speak to somebody. As soon as they hang up, you get 20 seconds. The next person comes in. So I won't use some of the language that I got confronted with uh, every day on the phone. But you also just learned about objection handling. You learned about dealing with multiple people and really just like knowing how to actually uh, build up a relationship with someone, which I think is really important and is something that has really helped me even today in, in my current B2B roles. Just getting on to someone and chatting away and, and building a relationship without even seeing that person or being in the room with that person. I think they're just really good skills to learn at the beginning of, of a sales career.
0: I hear you completely, I was a tweet recently, I think it was from yesterday, that I came across that said every marketer should have some experience in sales. It really is beneficial to think through the psychology of the buyer and and putting yourself in the shoes of of their objection handling and and such. So not only is it great for the sales piece to get that training that you went through and, and experienced, which I think is admirable, but also perhaps for other Orgs. We we sometimes we talk about it with like customer service teams. We've actually had that in on client customer service conversations as a, as a way of learning and improving how we market. So it definitely like resonates with me and respect
1: that ground floor uh, growth and and learning. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sales and marketing they they've always been intertwined. I think it's taken a long time for people to really see the value of of aligning those. And so I think the more sales experience marketers have and vice versa, the more marketing experience salespeople can have, the more they can work together. I know some of my companies previously, they've called it marketing when they've just got sales and marketing together as much as possible. Uh, Because if you don't do that, it's very easy to suddenly end up with sales over here and marketing over there at loggerheads, blaming each other for different things. So the more people can appreciate from either side what is happening and what skills are coming across from that side, uh, I think it's a really important part to growing a marketing and sales organization. I love it. And what are you,
0: what are you kind of focused on with Traffic Guard and what are you kind of seeing in the current role? And, and maybe tell us a little bit
1: about that. Yeah, so I've been involved with uh, Traffic Guard for uh, just over a year now, about a year and a half. And so before joining Traffic Guard, I'm not going to lie, I actually had no idea what affiliate marketing was. So it's been a really interesting period to to get involved in it. I know last week you had you had the Yoda of of affiliate marketing on. So I'd say I'm kind of more on the Padawan young Jedi (laughs) level, still, still learning the ropes. But it's been kind of nice to come in from an angle where I don't know too much about it and have a completely impartial view and just learn about the nuances and the stakeholders from the networks to the publishers to the agencies to the brands, just everything kind of working together. And so Traffic Guard as a whole has really kind of Targeted this product for the last year and a half, which is why they actually they hired me to, to come in and, and kind of help them scale and grow this product. Traditionally, we had been focused more on uh, our core products, which were PPC, which integrated with Google Ads and is all around like PPC protection. We then have a mobile product, which is focused on integrating in with MMPs like AppsFlyer and Branch and Adjust and actually sitting in front of those MMPs and blocking fraudulent traffic from from coming into them. And then now we saw that there was a huge opportunity in the affiliate marketing space where we could actually take that technology and apply it to affiliate marketing. And it's something that the way we're doing it hasn't been tackled before. There are a lot of other fraud providers out there, but the way we're approaching where we're integrating in with the networks and we're actually looking at user journeys rather than just looking at ad hijacking, it's really providing a lot of value at the moment to to brands. And we're really happy with the progress we've made so far. And there's a lot more, um, hopefully, to come in the next couple of years.
0: That's awesome. That's really interesting stuff. And I, I have to say, I think coming into affiliate with a you know fresh perspective and outsider's perspective is necessarily... Uh, a disadvantage. And I think it's that way in a lot of fields. I think people that, I think that's part of the ethos of kind of what we talk about a lot on this podcast. There's a lot of learnings to be had, a lot of it's easy to get entrenched in kind of past thinking and in, in all areas of life. And I respect that you're kind of coming in with that fresh perspective. To that end, can you tell us maybe some of the things that surprised you or you thought was interesting or notable in affiliate versus maybe?
1: other realms of digital? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just in terms of like, if you compare ad fraud and invalid traffic and the knowledge around it in affiliate, even compared to those other products I talked about with PPC and mobile, I feel like the education piece is huge in affiliate marketing. A lot of people are just kind of unaware of of how affiliate fraud works. I feel like if I had a dollar for every time I got told by an affiliate manager, we don't have fraud because we only pay for conversions. I would probably have at least a couple of hundred dollars in, in my pocket now. And that was just really interesting for me to see that there's just this lack of knowledge around it. And I think once we actually then go through that educative piece with brands, especially, and we kind of show them what is invalid traffic and ad fraud, how does it misattribute conversions? How can it damage your program? What is the potential growth opportunities out of that as well? It's just been really interesting to see that kind of change of of kind of people knowing more about it. And I can think even alongside traffic guide. I think it's becoming more relevant in in the industry as a whole. I mean, well, when I first went to PI Live in London last year, I didn't see anything about fraud or compliance. Whereas now, in some of the events like PI Live last week here in London, uh, they actually started. They're actually having talks and, and more focus on ad fraud and invalid traffic and compliance and and how that can affect and be basically taken out of the industry. And um, so I think it's just really interesting to see how that's uh, developed out of that. Yeah, I appreciate that.
0: I would agree with you. I think various, you know, trends, needs, themes come up and come and go in waves in affiliate marketing, search, social, programmatic, you name it, some of the mobile work you've done with your team, similar, right? It's nice in some ways to see it maybe come back in vogue for lack of a term, in my view. Maybe it would be interesting to learn, you know, laying the cards on the table for folks in a candid view of like all of the stuff that can go wrong, all the stuff, that, all the fraud that does happen out there. And I think that might be an interesting place to like really go a little deeper on to kind of say like all of this stuff can happen and has happened and we're seeing it regularly. So maybe maybe I'm curious to learn from your view, what are those things that
1: I think people are not fully aware of? So yeah, I think the big part of this is, is the approach that we are taking and, and why our technology works so well in this space where we're really looking at the entire user journey. So rather than just like looking at click level or just looking at conversions or just looking at the ad, we're actually looking at every single touch point from the first click to the conversion and even post conversion to what happens. And so what I always say to people is it's it's really about misattribution uh, when we look at affiliate fraud within the user journey. So it's basically how can, how are affiliates claiming that they are responsible for generating conversions that they actually aren't? Um, So I think everyone's probably heard of things like cookie stuffing before, things like click injection. So these are all threats that are designed to misattribute a conversion away from its true source and attribute that to a fraudulent source. There's a lot of problems with that. For one, obviously, you're going to end up paying for things that you shouldn't be paying for. They're either non-incremental or you've actually just paid the wrong partner. So that's one, you're just, you're just wasting money on, on that conversion. And then second one is the actual analytics and optimization behind that. So if you have affiliate A who's got 100 conversions per month and affiliate B has got 50 conversions per month, your natural thing is going to say, well, affiliate A has got more is driving more growth for us. So let's optimize towards that source. If you go into the back end analytics and start to see that there's actually a lot of fraudulent means going on to claim those 100 conversions, and maybe they're stealing 30 conversions from affiliate B, you can then see if you're scaling into affiliate A, you're actually optimizing into the fraud. Whereas once you have that visibility and that transparency to see, well, actually affiliate B we didn't think was that good, but once we have these analytics in front of us, we can see that they actually have 80 conversions per month and there's nothing fraudulent in their traffic. Let's optimize towards that and then actually start getting further growth from that. We also look at the partner mix that people have. So in terms of top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom funnel, because of the last click attribution model that most affiliate programs take, the bottom funnel is very well positioned to take advantage of that. So we see a lot of times where there's a lot of traffic from the top of funnel who are actually doing brand awareness. They're doing blog posts. They're really putting a lot of effort into the content they're putting out into the market getting people engaged and getting people onto a website. Um, and then these bottom funnel partners are just uh, popping up with a 10% discount count on the cart page. And then once that person clicks that ad, they're actually claiming attribution for that. So a lot of what we do, it's not just ad fraud, uh, which we kind of use the word of invalid traffic more, where sometimes it's an invalid conversion because of that setup that's purposely been enacted, uh, whereas it's not outright fraud. Um, it's just a, an invalid conversion. That's
0: fascinating. There's just so much in there. I really like that approach. So essentially, you're kind of saying, hey, we're looking at this from a full user journey perspective, not just at the event of the purchase, not just at the event of the click.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's even looking at the different contributions. So if there's traffic coming from Facebook or from PPC, and then we're having affiliate interaction, is that affiliate interaction, how much increase in conversion rate are we seeing from that? But then also, how much are we seeing drop off So we've all been on checkout pages and had pop-ups from 20 different partners trying to get us to interact with their ads. Sometimes that can actually end up not making you want to go through with the sale. Either the code doesn't work or there's just too many pop-ups and you just get frustrated. So it's also looking at the analytics behind that and how much are you losing by these partners popping up with these ads at at the end? And then just kind of getting all the data to kind of put this together, really. So we don't want to just make flash judgments. Uh, Obviously, affiliate programs and affiliate managers, they spend a lot of time building relationships with all these partners from every stage of the funnel. So everything that we do has to be data-backed and has to be transparent um, and open to discussion. Um, Everybody has different buying practices with their partners. Everyone has different ways they set up and different things they're happy with and not happy with. But essentially what we're trying to do with this visibility and transparency is give the power back to the brands to decide what they are happy to pay for and what they're not happy to pay for. Because we feel at the moment, a lot of the times, they kind of get left in the dark a bit by the attribution model they don't know how much is going but down to the bottom floor they don't know if there's cookie stuffing or click injection going on that misattributing away from the true source. Um so it's really just giving that power back to the brand because essentially they're the ones who are paying for this traffic. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I love love hearing that. You kind of touched on a couple of the, you know, cookie stuffing. I not to get too in the weeds here but what what are some of the other things that you guys are finding preventing stopping from happening that you're you're often seeing in this space?
1: So often what we will do is there's always going to be out and out fraud. So there'll be cases of things like cookie stuffing where we can see a conversion, we can see clearly it's a case of cookie stuffing and we can just invalidate that. A lot of times we're looking at a number of different anomalies together that kind of heighten the chances of this being a suspicious or invalid conversion. And so we might look at a conjunction of things like uh, one would be overnight activity. So if one partner, all their conversions are taking place at 3 a.m. for like a clothing brand or something, that's kind of anomalous. Not enough to invalidate it, but it's anomalous. If we then also see that that same partner is giving nothing in their referral domain, so they're completely anonymous of where they're getting that traffic from, that then adds on to the suspicion that could be something fraudulent there. If we then also get some kind of strange click activity, uh, so because in, when we set up, we monitor every single click, we monitor every single conversion. We also monitor the behavior on the landing page on the website, how they interact with that. So if we also then on top of those see the strange click activity compared to what a standard user journey is for that brand, this again then heightens that. So it's bringing all these different rules together and saying, why is this one partner in this program? doing overnight activity, strange clicks, nothing coming through from the referrer domain, this now means we need to go and kind of investigate this further. So there's going to be the out and out out fraud like cookie stuffing, or we can see if it's an artificially enhanced click using like an iframe or or a pop under. But then there's also the second side, which is just looking at why is this happening across a certain partner um, and taking all these different data points together. So I won't list them because it's about 250 different signals.
0: (laughs) And then I'm curious about like content is your team able to kind of look at reviewing content out there that affiliates and partners and influencers are promoting a brand on and ensuring that that's compliant? Or is that kind of getting into a more different
1: different field? So that would be probably more towards some of the other providers like, uh, like Brand Verity or, or Ad Police or, or one of those guys. Yeah. What we would be able to do is what, when we see a click coming through, we are able to track where that click is coming from. So we can look into the user agent, we can look at the referrer domain, and then we have a database of sites of some of our biggest clients. They, for example, in their terms and conditions, most terms and conditions are not going to allow a brand to advertise their ads on like adult sites or extreme sites or anything like that. Um, So if we can see something coming from one of those sites, we can automatically invalidate. We can't go to the extent of actually going to that site and seeing what content is literally on the site or where on the page it's being presented. But we can see the URL and we can match that across our database. And then if it is coming from a site that we know is non-brand safe, we can then also invalidate the, uh, the conversion from that source.
0: That's great. And then with regard to, obviously, lead gen presents a new, a different type of you know, fraud protection challenge. How are you kind of
1: addressing that or, or not? So with lead gen, it's actually a really interesting case. And it really syncs in very nicely with, with our user journey analysis. So a lot of times the problem with CPL campaigns is because they're not actually, it's no purchase taking place. You don't need credit card details. A lot of times it's just basically mainly on over incentivization. So if you have a CPL campaign and you might be saying, okay, for every lead or every sign up that you provide, uh, we'll give you $20. Some affiliates will then go to their user base and just say to them all, go and sign up. Let me know once you've done it. I'll give you $10. And then I'll keep the $10 in the middle. So these users that are going to sign up have no interest in the product they've got no interest in becoming a long-term customer all they want to do is get that ten dollars from the affiliate and once they want to do that they can change ip addresses change email addresses they can just keep repeating that trick over and over again um, and so this is where the user journey analysis comes in because that, what i was mentioned before of how we analyze every single user journey that comes in valid or invalid we can pick up what is the standard user journey so how, how long does it take typically from the click to conversion to happen? What website pages do they normally go to? What are these kind of typical signifiers of a real user? And then typically the invalid users, the one who are just interested in the reward from the affiliate, they're the ones that are going to convert in 10 seconds or they're not going to read any news uh, website pages or they're just going to be complete anomalous to what a normal user journey would be. Um, and so that's what we can actually then decipher and then pick up and then invalidate those conversions and make sure you're not paying out for any of those.
0: And so if I'm kind of you know resharing to you some of the great kind of like how we look at user journey behavior, it sounds like Traffic Guard is essentially saying, correct me if I'm wrong, this is within the band of what we deem normal user behavior, looking at that entire journey with some variance and, and maybe some anomalies. But if you see very large anomalies, very large spikes in certain directions, for example, speed from... Land to purchase, uh, maybe the heat map visibility is a completely anomaly and strange. That's when your your radars are kind of
1: tipped off, and you kind of notice there's something fishing perhaps going on. It's accurate, yes. And so, to tr- like, it's not completely new this side of what we do. A lot of people do this manually, and a lot of agencies will, will do that manually. They will just look for spikes and they will look for things that could be suspicious and go in and, and analyze that. What we essentially do on that side is just automate that and use um, AI and machine learning to actually optimize it. So rather than having to have somebody sit down and go through that, every single user journey is automatically getting added into the system. And if there is a spike or there is something that happens, we can automatically then get that conversion reversed until we figure out what's what's happening there. Kind of leads into another aspect, which is one of the unfortunate things with frauds is nobody wakes up in the morning and says, "Oh, you know what I'll do today? I'll go get a fraud provider because we might, we might, it's probably just good to have something." What typically happens is they wait until fraud hits them, then they find it, and they're like, "Ah, okay, we actually need to go and, and sort this out." And then they come to us because they have a problem and they now need to fix it. The problem with that is you're never getting ahead of it, so you're always waiting for it to happen. And then once it's happened, it's probably ha- been happening for the past two or three months, so you've already lost out. So once traffic guard's in place. If you do see a spike, if we do see something suspicious, we can automatically uh, invalidate those conversions, give the brand, and if there's an agency there as well, give the brand and the agency time to then dig into that. If for whatever reason there's a legitimate reason and the partner has just had a sale for the day or something like that, we can then just undo the reversals and let that commission goes out. But it just means that you have the ability to stop it in the first place and then decide what you want to do rather than wait for it to happen and then have to come back to us and say, oh, we've we've already lost three months of revenue. Now we need to fix it. Can you, can you come and help us?
0: Yeah. I, the being proactive piece and having some degrees of protection in place are certainly um, near and dear to my heart and, and they resonate. You talked a lot about the value of seeing a lot of the whole story and the, the full funnel and the journey within reason of what you can share. I would love to learn a little bit more about how you're able to do that? How is that possible? What kind of setup is required to see that much of the user data and maybe share a bit more about the how? That'd be
1: really interesting. Yeah, exactly. So we take an approach that is integrated with networks. Because of that, we can't just work across everybody. So we're kind of, as if still a fairly uh, new, newer product to the market, we've only got a two or three that we're running with so far. We have plans to Further that next year with, with more networks and more integrations. Um, but essentially, how the integration works is we first set up a gateway URL through the network, which just means every time there's an affiliate click that gets sent to the network, the network would redirect it to Traffic Guard and then Traffic Guard would redirect it onto the landing page. Because of what I mentioned, that a lot of fraud within affiliate marketing is misattribution, where the user will often be real. The, the fraud is the affiliate claiming that they should get paid for that. Conversion, we never block anything. Everything will always go through to the website. We're simply just analyzing that click, looking for bot activity, malicious IP addresses, anything like that, and then let that person go through to the website. That's when we then have the tag on the site where we want to pick up the behavioral analysis. So once they hit the website, where do they go? What do they do? What's their activity like? Again, looking at things like click to convert times, everything like that. And then the second part of the network integration would be with a post back where once that conversion takes place, the network would attribute it back to the click they have. They would then push that to Traffic Guard and say, Hey, Traffic Guard, we've got this new conversion. Can you just verify it? We will then verify it on our side, looking at the click data, the conversion data, and the behavioral analysis, matching that all together to give that full funnel transparency. And if we find something within that that is invalid, whether it's cookie stuffing or any of those threats, we can actually then automatically reverse that conversion within the network and stop that commission from going out. So essentially, it's a completely automated process once set up, and also once we go in and set up at the beginning, uh, like I mentioned, with different people having different partner mixes, different partner agreements, we never want to just go in and hit a big red button and start invalidating stuff. So the first kind of 30 to, I would say, 90 days is really crucial where we work with the brand and we go through each partner and we see, okay, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And actually customize those rules around what the brand wants. And then once that's set up from day 90, let's say, Then we just go into fully automated prevention. And then the brand knows from that point onwards, they don't have to worry. They've got everything protected and they can focus on getting new partners and building better relationships and and all the good stuff that they uh, should be doing. Love it.
0: That's really interesting. You know, and then I think about, I'm imagining you guys are sitting on some really fascinating learnings, a lot of fascinating data, you know, theme of the show, always be testing. We're, we're, We're talking and sharing a lot of the learnings that we see within reason, of what you can share obviously within the, what's proprietary and what's not. Can you give us some some of the things that maybe you have all learned that have been fascinating from your perspective or from your team's perspective or perhaps from the partners and clients that you've worked with as view. What are some of the learnings or, or thoughts that have come from from all the work that you guys have been doing?
1: So do you mean like examples of, of fraud we found or more what we've kind of learned from looking at across these? Probably more the latter. But I'm certainly also interested in the former. If you if you can share
0: some, within reason.
1: Well, I think one of the learnings would be that um, unfortunately, fraud is at the stage where it is pretty much across every program to an extent. Generally, the bigger programs potentially have been a bit more susceptible when you have larger conversion numbers and especially bigger payouts. It's always going to be more attractive to somebody who is trying to fraudulently gain money from you whether that's to slip through the cracks because there's 500,000 conversions or whether that's to only have to get five or six conversions a month in because there may be a CPA of $150. So generally fraud follows where the money is. Um, And so if if you are running a bigger program or you are running a program with a high CPA, it would definitely be worth at least doing a test to check what is potentially happening in there at the moment. And I think subscription-based is also something that's come to the fore quite a lot as well, where a lot of our clients who are subscription-based suffer a lot from this non-genuine engagement I was mentioning about over-incentivization, people just signing up over and over again and then canceling straight away just to get the reward from the affiliate. They're the typical ones I would say is, is kind of highlighting as you really need to make sure you focus on fraud within that program because otherwise it could be a bigger issue than, uh, than you know. Uh, that's pretty powerful and understandable. It makes a lot of sense that a lot of those
0: fraudulent partners are going to flow to where the biggest opportunity is for them what about on the um, typo squatting realm? Is there anything that I know? I'm kind of throwing a lot of like, what about this? What about that? Hypotheticals at you. So thanks for bearing with me. Is there any anything in the like typo squatting realm? It feels a little bit outside of what you've described, but I'm curious to know. Like, is that still a problem? Do you guys run into that a lot? Are you, are you, are you even monitoring that?
1: Yeah, typo squatting probably be another one that would fall slightly out of what our key use case would be. Again, I think some of those guys like uh, like Brand Verity and and Search Monitor and stuff, they would be more focused on that PPC side of, of people bidding on Google brand terms and things like that. One thing that we do do for some of our bigger clients, they do just they don't allow any PPC activity. So we can completely filter out anything that comes from PPC or if they want to filter out stuff from Facebook or anything like that. If they don't want to be overpaying or double paying, sorry, for, for some of these paid channels, uh, we can filter out everything from that. But when it comes down to specifically like finding is something typo squatting, that would be just slightly outside of, of what our core use case would be. Yeah,
0: no worries. That makes sense. Definitely a lot to do with what you're currently doing. Are you finding certain brands are this is really resonating with them in the affiliate realm? And perhaps brands that are not as aware or maybe is as educated on the the pain point and the challenge of fraud, maybe you could share some of the learnings you've had in terms of working with brands that in various levels of engagement with, with traffic guard and with fraud protection.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's, it's a really interesting environment to be in. And I think, like I mentioned before, about the educative side is, is so important because there are still people who even when we show them the data, they just don't want to know or they want to stick their head in the sand or something is. if something's going okay, it's like, I'm not going to disrupt this, so I'm just going to keep it going and I'd, I'd rather not know what's, what's happening. But once you actually get into the data with those people and once they actually implement Traffic Guards and the results that we see across our clients are pretty outstanding, I would, I would say. Obviously, I do work here, so I have to be a, a proponent of it. But it's it's really, really impressive some of the results people have been getting out of working with Traffic Guard. And I think that's probably one of the most rewarding parts is if you see somebody, if you work with somebody who is a bit kind of on the fence and they're not really sure about it, and then they decide to implement it and we run, and then three, four months later, they're paying less for higher conversions. It's like such a nice thing to see that they're actually coming around to it and then they start to actually become a, a, an internal champion of traffic guard. So I think that's kind of the nicest thing we've seen across across some of these clients. I love that. And, and maybe
0: you can share kind of in the, in the realm of learnings, can you share a little bit of like outcomes? Like what are, you know, to give all the names or, or any names if you don't want to, but I'm curious to know, what are some outcomes that you've seen
1: that are kind of like wins and learnings from that, from that view? At the end of the day, we are an ad fraud prevention platform. So the first key thing that we will always focus on is let's find the fraud and stop it. So let's find the fraud, invalidate those conversions and stop you paying out for things that you shouldn't. But then the second part is the growth side. And we do see ourselves also as a growth platform. And so it's the analytics behind, like i was mentioned before, of like when you know which partner is actually providing real genuine growth and which one is just poaching from other people or using some of these fraudulent means, that data behind can be really powerful. So... The first step will always be, let's stop paying for fraud and let's start reducing your, your costs. And then the second f- part of that will be to actually, let's see how we can actually grow this now and grow into these genuine sources. And I think it's really nice as well when you start off, Let's on average, I would say we typically find on the click level around 30% invalid clicks and on the conversion level, something between 8 to 10%. And within the first 6 to 12 months, we have consistently seen that drop across every client that we've worked with. So it's just really nice to see that once we implement this and we implement the data behind it, the fraud starts to to drop. And then we actually see them building much better relationships with their partners because suddenly the partners that were actually providing all this genuine traffic and then either having it poached, they're now getting their just rewards. So that partner is happier. And then they actually start to place the brand higher. And so they're actually providing more traffic. And then the growth just kind of scales from that. So it's kind of like the longer term piece, uh, but just all together, just that really nice kind of educate to invalidate to uh, to to grow and scale. I love it. It's pretty impressive summation and, and recap,
0: Kaylin, and it's super appreciated. Yeah, maybe maybe like just zooming out of some of the specifics of traffic card, would love to hear, you know, a little bit more about about you. What's something that. Maybe folks in the affiliate industry don't know about you that maybe have had a chance to work with you in the past, or things that might, you know, surprise or, or share with folks that want to know more about Kalen.
1: It's probably a bit fresh to talk about it yet, but I'm, I'm a massive sports fan, and specifically rugby. So, for any rugby fans out there, obviously we've had a pretty tough World Cup from a from an Irish side uh, over the last few weeks. So, I, I used to play um, international rugby as as a as a young gun back in my under twenty days. And so just really into rugby and sports. Um, another sad story is also I'm a Man United fan, which hasn't been great this year. So any other fellow United fans out there, we can always jump on a call and, and uh, shed some tears together if, if you need some support. But yeah, just generally a massive, uh, a massive sports fan, really. So uh, anything golf, football, rugby, you name it, I'll uh, I'll play and watch
0: it. I love that. I uh, I was really lucky to play a little bit of club rugby later in life, and and found it later in life. And I can see why you're obsessed with it. Some of the better rugby players I I got a chance to play with were from Ireland, and so
1: respect the tradition a lot. That's really cool that you're you're so into it. The next rugby world cups in Australia, but I'm pretty sure the one after that's in America. So I'll definitely be planning to uh, to get over for that. Um, hopefully, game in Austin as well. Absolutely, there's a pretty decent
0: rugby community community in Austin. And um, what position did you play?
1: Center or fullback was my positions. Always in the backs. Never fancied the forwards. It was uh, I'd rather just stay out and stay clean.
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: <laughs> How was your kicking game? Yeah, so uh, actually, well, I was a football, like a soccer player first, which was probably good to kind of hone the the kicking skills which that kind of led into me being a fullback first when I when I went into rugby and then kind of got more in the centre just to be a bit more involved, I suppose. Um, but yeah, the kicking side is definitely a big part of my game, I would say. Well, it was part of my game. I don't play anymore, unfortunately. But yeah, I'd say I'm quite happy with my my football-related skills on that side.
0: That's awesome. What, um, it sounded like you played at a pretty
1: pretty good level of rugby. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I sometimes don't say the country because it take, takes away a bit, but I'm half Irish, half Luxembourgish. So Luxembourg is obviously a, a pretty small country, about half a million people. So that's really the reason why I got to play international rugby. But it gave me an opportunity I probably wouldn't have had uh, if I'd just been trying to get into the the Irish team. So I got to go over to like uh, Croatia and Lithuania and Bulgaria and play in like European championships and, and things like that. So it was a really, really good experience up until about under 21's level. So it was just a really nice kind of way to... Kind of get into team spirit as well, I think, for young people, especially these days, sometimes can be a bit scared of getting into rugby with the bigger players and bigger hits. And obviously a lot of work currently being done about lowering the tackle height and having a safer game overall. But I just think the best thing about rugby is it is such a physical game and you go on the pitch and you literally kick the, the crap out of each other. But as soon as that final whistle ends, as soon as that final whistle goes, you shake hands, you go for beer after and you're gentlemen to each other. So I just think it's a really good sport to learn a lot about team building and just working together and, and also respect and and uh, the way even they talk to the referees and compare that to something like football. It's a completely different uh, style and setup. Um, so I just think uh, I'd, I'm a big protagonist of it and love to kind of encourage people to get into it.
0: I couldn't agree more. It's um, that... It's like controlled levels of conflict and challenge and physicality with such a respect for the other person and the other team. And then on top of that, you have such a great, a lot of communication required on the team and the team support and the team mentality. I, I really respect that a lot. It's uh, it's very cool that you got to experience it. I also would say you're, you're quite modest. You, you basically played on a national team under 21 and you got to travel and play international rugby that's it's very impressive feat that very few people are able to achieve
1: yeah definitely i know i was very very lucky to to be able to do that it's just a really good experience going on like a rugby tour with with some of your best friends as well i think like you said there there's a lot of those skills you take from sports and sports like rugby which really do correlate into the working world and working with team and leadership and, and everything like that and not giving up when things go bad. Uh, there's just so many transferable skills that come through, them, which is why, yeah, like I said, I'm a really big protagonist for young people to to get involved in a sport like rugby. There's a great expression that that they use a lot, which is uh, football is a football is a gentleman sport played by hooligans, and rugby is a hooligan sport played by gentlemen. Um, it's a good way to kind of look at it. Up.
0: Yeah, I would agree. It's a great great uh, slogan, and um, I also found the traveling kind of community. If you go abroad you know, or you're lucky to go somewhere and connect with someone who's a fan or a player the connection is just so instant when you when you meet somebody that gets it and understands the game and appreciates it for what it is it's uh, it's really cool to see I feel like you have like an instant friend in another a place that's two thousand ten thousand miles away depending on where you are and you have all these other differences but yet that sport and sports in general can really unify and bring people together in such a great way. It's, it's, it's awesome to see.
1: There's a reason there's an Irish pub in every town in the world <laughs> for exactly that reason.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did you... Uh, my, my... Okay, so quick little segue here. Man, you... Immediately, I, of course, think of um, our friend Beckham. I have to say, I checked out some of the Netflix documentary. It wasn't a diehard fan, was mildly informed, You know, appreciated what he did. But was blown away by the documentary and, and how much of an impact he had, how big it was for for Manu, for him, for for football, for London, for England. What are your what's your take on that? And I'm sure you have some opinion on it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, uh, growing up, he was a complete uh, role model for, I think, every United fan, just an absolute global superstar playing for, for our club. I didn't watch, finish the documentary, but I watched the first few few episodes of it. And it was, it was, again, really interesting just to almost just like a bit of a memory release going back and saying, oh, I remember the World Cup when he did that. I remember when this happened. I remember that scandal. So it was really nice to kind of look back through that. I did think it was potentially a bit of a self-serving documentary. There's a few aspects where I was a bit like, OK, this might be a bit too much here, but definitely for for the role he played overall the teams he played for the way he still is a staunch united supporter he still goes to the games he still supports uh, the team and watches everything and obviously what he's doing in uh, miami is is pretty impressive with starting a team from the ground up and within a year having players like messi um, busquets and some of these other guys playing for you it's pretty impressive what he's been able to do on that side and then at the same time as that his wife is also smashing the the fashion world so just together it's just an amazing the fact that those two people can do so much at the same time in the same relationship and still have loving kids and loving family and and just they seem to be really well connected with each other i think that's what probably the nicest takeaway i got from uh, from his story and, and that documentary that's
0: really cool love hearing your perspective a proper fans perspective on the documentary of, of beckham Kalen. i've been just love the conversations we've had love this conversation and i hope folks find a lot of value out of you know, learning more about fraud protection and affiliate, learning more about traffic guard, learning more about your journey. I feel like we could talk for much
1: longer, but I want to be respectful of your time. And man, it's been it's been fun. Yeah, no, it's been great. Uh, hopefully, I can try and get over to, uh, to Austin some point soon, or I'll be over in ASW in January. So I'm sure we can uh, we can catch up there as well. But yeah, it's been really good to uh, to chat. Yeah, I
0: didn't realize the rugby uh, passion was strong. We'll have to watch a watch a match uh, at the very least. And yeah, for folks that are interested in, in learning more about you, where can they find you? Where should they connect?
1: Yeah, I think probably LinkedIn is, is always going to be uh, the easiest. So just look up Traffic Guard and, and Kalen. I'm the VP Growth for Traffic Guards. Obviously, if, you, if you're if you connected with Ty and you want to get my email address, I'm sure Ty can connect us as well. So yeah, email or LinkedIn is, is probably just going to be the easiest.
0: Be happy to do so. And um, always a pleasure, Kalen. Thanks so much for your time, man. Talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Ty.